we were coming in. It's called short final, which is kind of your pathway right to your landing zone. And we were coming into a rooftop helipad. And uh, the way uh, one type of our helicopter is set up, the patient um, is sitting with their feet up in the nose of the helicopter and their heads back by us in the back. And this patient was becoming agitated and inadvertently kicked their foot up over the partition and down on the collective. And it's like, we're about to land on this rooftop helipad. And all of a sudden the helicopter drops and the pilot grabs it and, um, you know, corrects it so quickly. Um, so it's not just what they do, but it's also what they may have to do. And it's like, they're just, they're ready for anything. That's Josh Forsyth. I'm Greg Baird. You're listening to the Photo Gregor Podcast. I just finished editing this episode with Josh. Josh hit really big for me. I loved this episode. He and I are kind of casual friends. Our sons play on the same football team. And what he does is interesting. Um, I'll let him explain that during the course of the podcast. But as I was editing the podcast just a minute ago, found out I'm a heavy nose breather and I didn't know that. Um, so bear with me. I'm a heavy nose breather. I think I edited all of them out, but you never know. Anyway, so here's Josh. I'm here with Josh Forsyth. Josh Forsyth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg, for having me on. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, you're pretty interesting. What I know about you is, so uh, I want to find out more. That sounds fun. So what do you do? Uh, I am a firefighter paramedic, and I am also a flight nurse. I also teach a class for uh, paramedics and nurses who want to get into the flying business. We call it critical care. Cool. Well, um, that sounds like a whole podcast worth of uh, questions that I might have. <laughs> but let me start with this. What do you like about, um, like, that sounds like, that sounds like three different jobs, but uh, that, is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, they all kind of tie into each other. So that's how they all came about was I started as a paramedic uh, firefighter way back in 2002 and then decided to go to nursing school while I was doing that. And uh, after I finished nursing school, I started working in uh, an ICU, a trauma ICU and in an ER. And once I had enough time under my belt to uh, start applying to be a flight nurse, then I started applying to be a flight nurse. Cool. And then somewhere in the middle there, I was asked to start teaching uh, new paramedic students. And then that morphed into creating a course for paramedics and nurses who want to kind of advance their level of training. Oh, nice. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's start with firefighter. I mean, that's the first thing you listed and the first thing you started in. Um, what got you into that? What was your interest? I mean, how, what was it about you growing up that made you think, yeah, the firefighters thing, thing for me? Well, my dad was a firefighter. Okay. And we would go visit him at the fire station. And I loved it when we were there and they would get a call. That's a you call it when an, an emergency comes in that they have to respond to at least here 
in Utah. Other places have other words for it, like a jab in New York. But uh, yeah, they would get a call and uh, I loved seeing him like jump in his uh, fire truck or ambulance and go out with the lights and sirens rolling and and leave you standing there as a 10 year old boy. Yeah. Crying. Just, just thinking <laughs> my dad is the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. And so, so what was your first gig with the, I mean, I know you have different spots on the truck. You have different responsibilities. What was, what was the first one you had? So here in Utah, things work a little differently than, than some of the bigger cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the departments here in Utah, because there's just not, as many fires as there used to be. Um, they are a firefighter or, or a fire and a um, EMS department. They're, they're merged together. Okay. And so I started and I was just a basic firefighter and I was a paramedic. So that means I was initially always on the ambulance, but there was two of us on the ambulance. We were both firefighters. We were both paramedics. And we were part of a crew of four. The other two were on either a fire truck or a fire engine. And um, that would be the captain and the engineer. And so anytime we go on a medical call, usually the ambulance will go first and the engine or the truck will be right behind us. And then um, anytime we go on a fire call, then the fire truck is in front and we're following the fire truck. But uh, we carry all our personal firefighting gear on the ambulance. And then, you know, if you get to a fire, you put all that stuff on and then you run over to the fire truck and grab what you need and uh, go do it, uh, what you're assigned to do. Okay. So I imagine, I mean, you have different assignments. I'm sure you can't be stepping on each other's toes. What, what kind of things, what kind of division of labor do you have doing that? So, well, yeah, at a uh, at a medical, um, usually one of us on the ambulance takes the lead, and we call that position the aid man. And their job is to just kind of run the call, like direct everyone else kind of on what you want to do or what you want to have happen or what you need help with. Uh, and then the other guy we call airway, just because uh, if the patient needs airway management, then it's going to fall to that person. So. You got the aid man, you got the airway guy, and that is for medicals. And then, um, let's see, what else you asked me? Sorry, I'm messing up here. <laughs> I'm don't worry, I mess up the podcast all the time. <laughs> oh, good. It's it's. Uh, I asked you what what kind of other roles. Like you guys are the paramedics and there's the guys on the fire trucks. They get out on a fire call. What's their role versus your role right. on that one? Right. So. Yeah, so most everybody in our department, everybody in our department is a firefighter and either an EMT or a paramedic. So everyone is medically trained. Yeah. Um, So the guys on the fire truck, they are also paramedics or EMTs, mostly paramedics. And uh, so on medicals, you know, anyone could step in and do it. We just each kind of have our role. So. Uh, as we go in on a normal call, you know, there's going to be four of us. There's going to be the aid man, the airway guy, the engineer, who's the one that drives the fire truck. 
and then the captain who's kind of our babysitter and he rides in the fire truck so mostly on medicals um the captain really their first priority is our safety so as we're kind of thinking about medical care and we're all responsible for our safety but as we and the first thing we do is we come up to a to a house or to a, a car crash or whatever uh, we look around and just try and determine if it's safe for us to approach and and once we've kind of determined that you know we try to stay aware but um our captain his main job is to kind of sit back and keep tabs on how things are going you know we call it uh situational awareness he just maintains uh awareness of what's going on and uh the conditions whatever it could be and uh and then he uh helps as needed and if you know if if i need like say i'm talking to the patient and uh or treating the patient and the patient's unconscious um i may send the captain to go talk to anyone who saw what happened or knows what happened um i may do that to the engineer the engineer uh we lovingly call them the stretcher fetchers because they bring <laughs> us the stretcher and get us the things that we need there's no time for joking this is a a, a job yeah we're on a job <laughs> so uh yeah and i used to be a stretcher fetcher as well all right but, uh and then the airway guy you know you may people run them differently i may sit back and talk to the patient and the airway guys like um he's hooking them up to our monitor to get their vital signs and mm-hmm. um uh or if it's a serious call like what what we call a, a full arrest or a cardiac arrest um then we have a lot more delineated roles um you've got somebody running the monitor you've got somebody on cpr you've got somebody on the airway um you've got someone pushing meds and anytime we have a cardiac arrest we'll also have another ambulance come with us so we have an additional two guys and usually a battalion chief as well so sure so three extra guys and and so when i go when 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 my neighborhood something happens so like uh just you know a few houses down a few years ago one of the older gentlemen in our neighborhood neighborhood passed away and there was a lot of trucks that showed up and that's the reason is you know if there's a chance of reviving somebody you got all the people in place to do what you need to do yeah, sometimes it's just lifting help. I, you know, mm-hmm. we're down in a, in the back of a, of a basement here, and it might be kind of hard if I'm completely unconscious to get me out of here through the doorways, around the corners, up the stairs. So a lot of it's just logistical moving the patient. But you know, everyone there and everyone who came on your, um, on your neighbor, they were all medically trained, mm-hmm. and so they're all there to help. Um, and you know, CPR is tiring. So per the American Heart Association, one person should not do CPR for longer than two minutes before trading off. Oh yeah. That's like running a, that's, that's like running a, like a medium, uh, medium pace sprint for that long. Yeah. It, it, it's a good workout. Yeah. It really is. So tell me about one of those stories. Like I'm, this is a hard job. This is something that let's just, let's just declare it for the world. I'm kind of a pansy. So this is not a job that I would have gravitated towards, but, uh, Tell me some. Tell me something about one of those early experiences that was really rewarding that made you go, "Yeah, this is it. This is the thing for me." You know, just turning on the lights and sirens and driving down the road—that's <laughs> it. All I needed. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so going back to when I was a kid, I remember we were going on vacation once down to Lake Powell, and 
uh, we were in a very rural area and uh, in rural. So different areas have different, you know, types of responders. Sure. When you're somewhere more metro like this, like here, um, we have uh, full time. We call them professional firefighter paramedics. Right. Uh, you get out in the rural areas and, they, and they're typically more staffed by volunteers. And so these are people who have a day job and this is just kind of their providing service to the community. So they may not have uh, the equipment that we have. They, they don't necessarily get to train as often as we do. They may not run as many calls as we do. Uh, and I say we as a professional department. Um, but, you know, for what they, they, they do, they do a great job and they're a great service to their community. But on this particular night, we're down in a rural area and there was a rollover in front of us. And one of the people in the car had died and another person was trapped and was still alive. And my dad just, you know, pulls up, puts the motorhome in park, casually gets out, walks over, tells him, hey, I'm a paramedic. Can I help you? And they love to have extra hands there. And so they had him climb in and uh, hold the patient's, uh, you know, help the patient, hold the patient's neck to keep it from moving. I don't know if they had him start an IV or, or you know, manage the patient's airway or anything. But And then uh, after it was all over, he came back, got in the motorhome, put it back in drive, and off we went. And I just thought it was so cool that he just knew what to do and he what he wasn't even nervous and i love that and so that's really when i was like you know what this is what i want to do cool yeah that that's the kind of thing that i man i assume there's something like that and i have these very vivid memories in my mind i've coming across the scene of an accident here and there you know and, you know and, and I, my brain just goes okay it's go time and I just act on instinct. I don't know all the right things. I'm not a paramedic, but uh, but I know. I just I have this clarity in this. Like I, I remember every I remember everything about that moment, those moments. And then once the paramedics show up and the professionals show up, I you know take a step back, give my statements, and then I have this crash because the adrenaline was going. Like w- when I came across the thing. Adrenaline's going, and then I just have that adrenaline crash. Do you do you experience the same thing? Um, I think it happens so much. First of all, the yeah, the adrenaline is is still there, and and definitely some calls more than others. Uh, as far as the crash, I don't know if we feel a crash. It's you just kind of because it's a normal day for you, right? So you may be sitting there, you know, hanging out as a crew, um, doing whatever training. If it's later in the day or after five, then you may be sitting there watching a movie. Uh, guys, you know, some of the guys play video games. We've got like ping pong at the station. Someone may be and there's working always, out. Always chili cooking, right? <laughs> there's always, yeah, we usually <laughs> eat pretty well. Uh, that's for sure. And so you're just, you're doing your thing. And then a second later, you're going to some crazy situation that, and for the people who are involved in that situation, it's like the worst day of their life. Like they don't maybe things like this have probably never happened to them. And and for us, it's just another day. And so we show up and yeah, our adrenaline gets going and uh, uh, you know, especially depending on, on what's going on. Like, you know, we have our standard calls that we go on all the time over and over and they're just kind of a, 
uh, bread and butter call. And, and then you've got your exciting calls. You know, we usually like trauma and, uh, cardiac arrest and, you know, did you say you like that? Well, not that we want people to go through that, but okay. that lets us use our <laughs> skills and that's kind of an adrenaline rush to kind of come in and, you know, usually you get there and people are panicked and you're able to, uh, hopefully help or save their loved one. And, um, it is, it's a rush and it feels good. And, and then you go, you know, drop the patient off or whatever. And then you go back to doing what you were doing, probably crack a few jokes about, uh, what happened. And we do, uh, kind of have, tend to have a, a darker humor, which, uh, is, is that, I, is that a coping mechanism? I mean, I've actually, so they, they're doing a lot more studies on our um, profession now. And, uh, yeah, um, one article I was reading was talking about how that dark humor, while it's dark, uh, it's humor and our body, you know, our minds and our bodies, which your bodies are also affected, respond to it as if you're laughing and as if, you know, it's happy and whatever. So it's, yeah, it's a, more of a subconscious uh, coping mechanism, but um, yeah, so that's the medical things. And and then obviously we also do fire. That's the other thing that we love. We love a good structure fire, um, you know, going interior on a structure fire or vent in a roof or that's the other part of our job that we really look forward to. And then so uh, they punch a hole in the roof to make sure the smoke goes out instead of yeah it accumulating uh, yeah it, it pulls heat and smoke out to the idea is to make inside more tenable for anyone who may be alive and then also for the crews who are going in to be able to f- find the fire put it out find the victims pull them out you know by getting by getting rid of the, the smoke they can see better and by getting rid of the heat um it's just safer environment that that's interesting to me i would think that uh that would also feed the fire for oxygen too well, it does. And so it, it has to be timed right. You don't just, you know, you don't just start cutting holes whenever. Um, and that's called, that's vertical uh, ventilation. That's one way to do it. It's a little more dangerous. Sometimes it's more effective, but another way that we ventilate is you'll put a fan at the door and it basically pressurizes the building. And then someone on the other side of the building or, or where is strategically um, appropriate, they knock out a window or, or open a door so that kind of all the smoke and heat kind of gets pushed out. And uh, again, with that, you're introducing oxygen into a, into a fire. So it has to be very coordinated because yeah, the fire will, will grow if you, uh, if you don't get it knocked down quick, once you've introduced additional oxygen in there. And uh, yeah. And, and once we open, once you open the door to go in, you know, with your hose line or, or whatever, if you're going in on a search, um, that door that you just went through that now, if it's still open, that's another source of oxygen. And so the fire, um, is going to start to flow towards that, um, area. So, and that's one of the ways that that a fire could get behind you and trap you. So yeah, there's a lot of coordination and uh, you do have to, you have to maintain a high level of situational awareness, you know, are conditions changing? Am I hearing things falling? Is the, you know, the building getting weaker? Um, is it getting hotter? How's the fire behaving? Am I, you know, there's lots of indications that things are getting worse. 
And so you've got to stay alert for those. Um, yeah, but on fires, um, you know, if they're super dangerous, like the fully involved structure, you know, it's coming out the roof. So, you know, the roof supports aren't, aren't reliable and, it, and it's everywhere. We call that a, a defensive fire. We surround and drowned it. Um, and you know, there's pretty low risk for that, but if there are occupants trapped inside, or if we think we can get the fire knocked down quickly and save the structure in a fairly safe manner, um, then we'll go inside. And, uh, we have a phrase, we risk a lot to save a lot and we risk a little to save a little. So there's no sense going into a structure that's a lost cause and there's no victims in there. Or, you know, if there is anyone in there, they're dead. Um, it's not worth risking your life to go uh, pull out a body. But if there is a, a known victim in there um, and there's any chance they could be alive, we'll take a lot more risks to go in and, and try and get them out. Yeah. So I guess, I guess if the, if the building is a total loss at some point, you're just saying, okay, let's make sure it doesn't spread to the, 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 yeah. Other buildings. We call them exposures. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll start because they'll heat up too, just through radiant heat Mm -hmm. and, uh, or, or through, you know, air currents that carry the heat over to them. So yeah, you, other buildings, uh, uh, cars, things close by, they'll start smoking. It can catch on fire as well. So yeah, you just, is that how they spread mostly is just that radiant heat or the, the carried heat? Um, well, it depends. Like fires outside or wildland fires, um, they they burn differently than a fire in a structure, and so it depends on what you're talking about. But yeah, you've got you've got different heats that spread fire. You've got radiant heat, which is just comes off the fire. So anything you know, if you're standing next to a fire and you're feeling that heat, that's radiant heat. Mm-hmm. There's convective heat, uh, which is the heat that's carried on uh air currents and you know fire um heat rises and as it rises it it creates space below it for air to come in and so air is moving around and so um that air is carrying the heat usually up but maybe over it just depends on what's going on then you've got um conductive uh heat transfer and so like like through metals and stuff yeah so maybe there's a, a metal pipe that's exposed downstairs and and it's heating up and then at the other end of the pipe upstairs maybe it's enclosed but it's getting so hot it starts the studs on fire or something so it can spread that way as well wow okay that i mean that that all makes sense but you don't think about it that way you think about it in terms of the surfaces catch on fire they're made of paper and wood and and then goes from there but which is and i love the science of everything i love the science of medicine i love the science of fire but um the things that you think are burning, they're not actually burning. What's happening, it's called, uh, it's a phenomenon called pyro- um, pyrolysis. Or it's, uh, they're heating up to the point that they're releasing gases. And that gas, when mixed with an, the right amount of oxygen and the right amount of heat, then ignites. And so um, it's the gases right above uh, whatever's burning that's actually burning. And, uh, you know, whatever's burning, whether it's a couch or, or, you know, carpet or whatever, um, it is, it's essentially decaying as the gases come off of it and, and burn. And yeah, so it's actually, it's a pretty, pretty interesting fire. Yeah. I did know that on the base level, scientific level, but you know, that's just, you just don't think about it that way, just in your normal everyday life. So Um, you start to think about it that way when. 
um, as a room heats up and everything in that room is off gassing, um, once a room hits somewhere between 900 and 1200 degrees, uh, Fahrenheit, enough gases will be coming off everything in the room that everything can ignite at once. We call that a flashover. And if you are, even with your fire, you know, safety gear, your, we call them turnouts. Even with your turnouts on, your air pack on, your helmet, everything. Um, if a room flashes on you and you're not able to get out, you have about two seconds before you're, uh, you're a goner. So, so you got to, you know, watch for signs of a flashover. Yeah. Or, okay. You've also heard, you know, of the movie Backdraft. Backdraft is an actual phenomenon. It's sure. not as, usually it's not as dramatic as it is in the movie, but uh, same kind of thing where a fire is starved for oxygen. And so uh, we call it a ventilation limited fire. So it burns until it can't burn anymore. The heat's still there and the gas is still there, but the oxygen isn't. And then you introduce the oxygen by opening the door to that room and you'll get a gust of wind gets sucked in to that heat and then once it mixes with that those gases then it explodes out and yeah those can also be dangerous yeah i imagine that's why you feel the door when your fire alarm goes off before you open it right yeah that and if it's warm then then there's a you know maybe a fire on the other side so don't go that way anyways, even if it, whether there's going to be a backdraft or not. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The science of all that fascinates me too. And that's, that's one of the reasons I, I, I do this. I like to ask people about things that I'm curious about. And mm. you've answered a few questions that I didn't even know I had. Um, but you talked about you liking the science of it. I, I imagine you like the science of flight too. Oh Yeah. You combine that with um, flight. Uh, you work for an air ambulance service and gosh if that if that if the science of medical care and fires is not enough you're adding flight to it um <laughs> yeah it boy it is it's amazing and i watch so uh, so with that job um i'm the nurse and i have a paramedic partner and then we have a pilot and that's usually how we fly sometimes we fly in what's called a fixed wing aircraft which is an airplane mm-hmm. uh, most of the time i get to fly in a rotor aircraft uh which is called a helicopter And I just, I sit there and look at these pilots and especially the helicopter pilots. There's no offense to any, uh, airplane pilots, but, uh, there's a lot more going on with the, with the rotor pilots and, uh, just the things that they can do. It just amazes me. Like like what? Um, the tight spots that, that we're able to land in, um, the, uh, the, like, the wind that, uh, that, that may be gusting or whatever. And then to try and come in and, um, and land safely while wind is throwing things up and down. Um, one time we were coming in, it's called short final, which is kind of your pathway, right? To your landing zone. And we were coming into a rooftop helipad and, uh, the way, uh, one type of our helicopter is set up, the patient, um, is sitting with their feet up, in the nose of the helicopter and their heads back by us in the back and, uh, and, and the pilots sitting next to their feet. And there's a little, you know, partition between them, but, uh, right on the pilot side of that partition is a, a little handle and throttle known as the collective, which is what makes the helicopter go up and down. 
and this patient was becoming agitated and inadvertently kicked their foot up over the partition and down on the collective. And it's like, we're about to land on this rooftop helipad. And all of a sudden the helicopter drops and the pilot grabs it and, um, you know, corrects it so quickly. Um, so it's not just what they do, but it's also what they may have to do. And it's like, they're just, they're ready for anything. You know, I mean, you've, you've seen Top Gun pilots are just cool. <laughs> they are so cool. For me, it's the jackets and sunglasses. That's all. The only reason I think piloting is, is worth anything. Well, is and the that, jackets and sunglasses. That is definitely a part of it. I don't think I've ever met a pilot who doesn't have a cool jacket and a really cool <laughs> pair of sunglasses. Well, and some dog tags that you throw in the ocean. Yeah. Well, yeah. When goose dies, you know, you can't hang on to those forever. Well, they, they hold you back. But you you always had that volleyball game to remember, though. Yeah. Um, you got those <laughs> to go back on. But, I, you know, riding in the back or, or even at the bases, I'm constantly, like, learning from the pilots how helicopters work, how, um, how airplanes work. Uh, I didn't realize how interested I would become in aviation. I was just in it for, you know, hey, you know, flight teams are cool. That's why I wanted to do it. But to actually learn the science of flight and I'll be, we'll be up there flying. And then I will just be overwhelmed by the fact that this machine is flying. It's just, it's amazing. And all based on air pressure. Yeah. Creating a, yeah. Everything in life is based on gradients, high, high pressures to low pressures. And so yeah, you create a high pressure below it, a lower pressure above it, and it goes up. So do you need do you do that with that uh the the um air ambulance service? Do you do any search and rescue with that or or is it strictly transportation um from accidents or between hospitals and what? Yeah, there are um there are different different helicopter air ambulance agencies that uh that are involved in in different aspects. Um, so there is one locally, they have a hoist on their helicopter and they do participate directly in rescues. Okay. Yeah. Um, there, and then there is also the department of public safety has a helicopter around here that that's one of their main things they do is they don't do medical, but they do hoisting. They work with search and rescue groups and stuff like that. Our agency, just because of the way we're set up, um, we do not, participate in search and rescue uh it's given a different name it's called search and assist so yeah we'll go uh help look for people we'll we'll shuttle you know ski patrollers up to maybe the site of an avalanche or whatever um but they're very careful what they call it just because of the faa and the rules and regulations of flying so we do um search and assist okay yeah i i would Definitely want to use the correct terminology. Um, but we, you know, we, there's the patient, there's search and rescue, um, and the patient needs medical. Well, then, yeah, we're landing and we're going over and we're, you know, treating the patient. And with the help of search and rescue or whatever the case is, um, then we move the patient to the helicopter and then off we go. So, yeah. So tell, tell me a story of, of, uh, of a situation that, you know, that with the air ambulance that, uh, you were able to really help somebody in need. Unfortunately for the excitement of things, 
for us, about uh, 70% of our calls are us taking patients from small rural hospitals, patients who are really sick or really injured, and transporting them to the big trauma facilities, you know, that have the big ICUs that can take care of cardiac patients and all that kind of stuff. That 30% uh, it is we do what we call scene flights. And that's, again, like for a firefighter paramedic, you know, fire is, and, and good traumas, that's what you love. And as a, a flight team member uh, or an air medical flight team member, it is the scene flights. So yeah, landing on the freeway with the highway patrol shutting it down or landing up in the hills or the mountains um, and doing that sort of thing. So I'm trying to think of a... I know you're not saying you love when there's something going on. Yeah, I but guess. But there's a, there's a certain cachet to... Hopping out of the helicopter when something's going right. on. Right, there is, and like like, like is, it's all in slow motion or something. Yeah, that's how I used to. I mean, when I was, <laughs> you know, when I was younger, or when I was, you know, the firefighter and, or the paramedic, and we'd call for a helicopter and they'd come out. Yeah, whenever the air medical crew got out, to me they were walking in slow motion with the wind blowing in their hair and cool music playing. That's just how I. And the sunglasses. Visualize them. Yeah. And, and the, the sunglasses, sunglasses. Of course. <laughs> In fact, it was funny. Uh, I noticed one day, this was before I was a, I was a flight, uh, flight nurse. We were at doing some safety fair in a local city around here. And, um, and the police got there before us and everyone was looking at all the police equipment and, you know, they had their cool dogs and whatever. And, and then we showed up in the fire truck and everyone lost, immediately lost interest in the police car and all that <laughs> stuff and came over to the fire truck. And we put up the aerial, you know, and we're like hanging, you know, rappelling off it and showing them, letting them shoot water and that sort of thing. And, you know, we knew we were like, yeah, that's right. We're the best. And then all of a sudden came the helicopter and everyone forgot that there was a fire truck sitting there. And now everyone's attention was on the helicopter. So <laughs> that's kind of the, uh, the levels that, uh, that I've seen it in throughout the years, but no, they're <laughs> all important jobs and sure. And some, you know, some people are drawn to, to one job over another, but yeah, I just, uh, I like that, that adrenaline, that excitement. Yeah. So story, I, I, I sidetracked you, I think, <laughs> but, uh, do you have any good stories? Uh, I have lots of good stories. I'm trying to think sometimes they die. Sometimes they live. I, I, I want to think of a good one where the patient lived. Yeah. Well, let me, let me explore that for a second with you. Do you, do you experience grief when, when things don't work out? I mean, cause you know, they don't, I mean, realistically, I mean, you, you want to sugarcoat it and say, yeah, everything's going to work out all the time because you know, that's what we see in the movies and that, but it doesn't work out all the time. Do you, do you experience, do you internalize that? Do you take that home with you? Is that grief for you too? Um, it, it is a very good question. Um, I think there's a lot of subconscious stuff going on there. Protective mechanisms for me, rarely do I feel grief over a patient who dies. Now I say rarely because there are times and sometimes that grief doesn't hit me till later. Um, it's always hard. It's always hard when it's kids. It's always hard when it's somebody that 
you can somehow relate to your life. Like he, he looked like my dad or this woman was the same age as my wife and she has kids, you know, the same number of kids that we have or something that brings it home that can make it really hard. But, um, yeah, I think if you were to let yourself grieve over every sad situation you were in, I don't think you could stay in this line of work. Now, I did have a really interesting experience. I went on a call once when I was a young uh, medic and uh, there was a, it was a large SUV that was turning left at an intersection on a, on a high speed road and the light turned yellow and, and, and you know, the suburb or the other yeah, suburban was in the intersection and then the light turns red and traffic stopping and the suburban turns left just like they were supposed to do. And there was a motorcyclist that was kind of behind the traffic that was slowing down. And when he saw the light turn yellow, he popped out from behind the cars and hit the gas. And as the mom turned, her uh, son, who I think was 11 or 12 years old, was sitting in the front seat and the um, motorcycle hit right on his door and it crushed the door in. And, you know, he had a seatbelt on like he should have. And I don't know if that contributed to it, but the seatbelt kind of held him there so that the motorcycle could kind of crush his uh, trunk, his chest and abdomen. And um, so we were the second ambulance there and um, we, we got there and the engineer who was from the first arriving fire truck, he said, Hey, you guys need to come take this patient. Um, I think he's dead and his mom doesn't know it yet. And so we went over and heard him, you know, got him into the ambulance and uh he he was he he had um died and i remember cutting off his shirt in the ambulance you know to kind of expose and as in part of the process of treating him and you know he didn't have a pulse and his chest was just black and blue from he had obviously torn some large vessels uh you know blood vessels in his in his chest and um and had quickly bled out. There was no saving this kid. And uh, it was an interesting situation. And we don't normally transport bodies, but um, but we ended up just taking him to the hospital anyways. And, uh, you know, I was sitting in the back alone with him and I was looking at him and I was like, wow, this is kind of sad. And for a second, I got like, like a whiff of emotion where I felt like I was going to cry and then it just went away. And then I, and then I didn't feel any emotion after that. We dropped him off and you know, you deliberately don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And all the vehicles ended up at the hospital and patients were dropped off. And, and then we kind of hang out in the ambulance bay and Hey, what are you guys doing for dinner? And, you know, laughing, going back to life. And, um, Years later, like I'm talking 10 years later, I was interviewing for, uh, for the air medical agency that I work for. And I'd made it past all of the, um, scenarios and the peer interview process, you know, that they call it. And, and the people on that first level of interviewing, 
they felt like, oh, this is a guy we should send up to administration and let them see if they want to hire him. So I'm sitting there with the the director of this program, a couple of the um, medical control doctors, chief flight nurse, chief flight medic, and a, a question is asked about a call that I had been on and uh, that was hard for me or something. I can't remember exactly what the question was, but I, I immediately, um, this is what came to mind. And I started telling them about it and I started sobbing like a baby. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I no. Just the, the expression on your face as you said it was just. Yeah, well, I was like, <laughs> what is happening to me? I was sobbing and I don't sob. Like I don't cry. And, um, and it was, and they were all kind of looking at me. It was really uncomfortable for them. Here's this dude sitting in their office crying. And the, you know, f- the program director pushed a box of tissues over to me. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know why I'm crying. I've never uh, cried about this. <clears throat> and then I break <laughs> into tears again. And they're like, it's all right. Just take some time. And I'm like, I don't need to be consoled. I don't know why I'm crying. <laughs> and, uh, and as I left that interview, I thought, you know, that was either really bad for me in the, uh, in, you know, making, uh, and demonstrating myself as a candidate they might want to hire, or it was really good showing that I have emotion and I care and whatever. And it ended up being really good because I got the job, but that was, that was an example of one of those. And it obviously stayed with you. It stayed with me. But never at a level of sadness. It was just, it was just there. And then, but apparently there was sadness because it well, came out. I would posit that your ability to uh, feel that emotion of that moment from 10 years ago, like you weren't able to feel it then because you weren't mature enough to. And now you're mature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> we flew a patient the other day who... Mom had left it in the bathtub. Uh, it was just a little, uh, uh, you know, an infant, and just was distracted just for a minute, and then kind of forgot. Comes back, and the baby had drowned, and the EMS had arrived and done CPR on it, and got it back, and um, at least got a heart rate back. There was obviously already some severe brain damage, uh, and at the hospital, we were called to transport this baby to the, you know, to the. Children's Specialty Hospital, and you knew like the heart's beating and it's now breathing on its own, but it's it's the brain had gone without oxygen for too long. This this is a baby that's not going to survive this, and you hope well maybe this baby can be an organ donor for um for another baby who maybe has a congenital heart issue. You know this baby's life can maybe save another baby's life, and that's what you hope. And you know you don't rip away all hope from the mother because there's always miracles that happen, but you know, she had hope and she obviously felt awful because this child had died because she had gotten distracted and we flew the baby and her and dropped it off. And I remember looking at my partner and just saying, I don't even feel sad. And I don't even know why I told him that, but it just shocks me that, my emotion is so gone with some of these things and maybe I'll 
maybe I'll be interviewing for another job and I'll start crying about that one. But you know, these are, <laughs> well, well, I think if I could posit a, uh, a, like a armchair psychology there, you can't internalize every bad thing that happens. It's it, you've got enough of your own, you know, you've got your own life and you've got happinesses and sadnesses there to you. You can't take on some of their families. You can't take it all with you. And, and so, uh, I would, I would assume that, that you, you get to the point where you, you do your best and you're satisfied by doing your best, even when the outcome doesn't work. That I think you're right. Um, we didn't cause the emergency. We didn't cause the death or whatever, but we did, uh, do our best to help them. And that's the thing. If, if I feel like I did everything right. Yeah, I don't. Um, but you know, we're all human and we all make mistakes and I've made mistakes before and then, you know, racked my mind over it for days and weeks later. Did I make the right decision or should I have done that differently or whatever? And that is probably the harder part of my job is, mm. is maybe doing something that you lay, you look back on as you're evaluating the call and thinking that maybe you did something wrong. Maybe something you did contributed to their death or maybe more like more often, which um, it's not often, but maybe there's something else that you could have done. So, um, yeah, a different drug or, or a different this or different that, but you really shouldn't, uh, I mean, it's, you need to evaluate the calls because you should always be improving and learning from every experience. And, and, you know, I've done dumb things before on calls and I make sure that I share it with, uh, my colleagues more than rather than hide it because I think we all do dumb things. And if we can share our mistakes with our peers, maybe we can help prevent them from having the same, uh, making the same mistake we did, or, you know, maybe prepare them for something where they'll succeed in a situation where had they not, you know, heard what had happened to you, maybe they would have been less likely to make a certain choice or whatever. So, yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate your, your forthrightness and, and, uh, for being so real about it. I mean, these are, that's all, all these emotional things and, and the potential for that. I would take it home with me. And that's probably, I say I'm a pansy, but <laughs> it's more than just being, I'm, I'm not mentally strong enough. It's, it's more than that. It's just kind of like, I couldn't handle it. Cause I, I, I think I would internalize all of it and bring it home. And so I, I appreciate what you do. If you don't mind, if we shift gears a little bit, um, our sons are on the same football team. And go, yeah, go Skyridge. Go Skyridge, right? And and basketball team. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen your kid uh, blossom into pretty darn good athlete. What makes you proudest about your kids? And I, I don't mean him specifically, but but he's the only one that I know well. Um, what what is it for you about raising kids that makes you just puff out your chest and feel proud? Um, that's funny. First of all, most of the good raising comes from my wife. I mean, (laughs) working all those jobs, I'm not, I am not around nearly as much as, as I should be. Um, but you know, they each kind of have something about them that I just love and just makes me proud. Um, and you're talking about, you know, that you're, you're maybe more of a wuss when it comes, you take that stuff home. Well, my oldest daughter is a CNA and she actually just got accepted into the, the University of Utah. Yes. And 
Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, so she's going to try to get in a nursing school. And but right now she's a CNA. She works over at this uh, nursing home. that's just right around the corner from where we live. And she loves her, her residents. And when one dies, it's really hard for her. And I talked to her about that. Like you can't hold on to that or you're not going to be able to do this job. But she is so just sensitive to other people's pain, other people's suffering, other people's needs. Um, I just, I brag about her all the time. She is just so capable. She reminds me of her mother who is, you know, the most amazing woman I know. Um, but then she's got a bit of her dad's silliness and quirkiness to her. So I think she's like the perfect mix of, of me and my wife. (laughs) And then, you know, my son, uh, who is with uh, your son on the different sports, um, he's had some, some challenges growing up and, uh, and it's made it hard for him. One thing in particular is to, is, um, physically like hand-eye coordination, the ability to move. I mean, when he was, uh, you know, a little kid, he, when other kids could do somersaults, he couldn't do a somersault. There was just some things there and we had him in occupational therapy and uh, we worked through that. And, um, he, he just developed this love for sports. And I remember telling him once, I'm like, Hey, and I, I think I broke his heart and I felt bad about this. I said, Hey, God did not bless you with great athleticism, but I think he blessed you with the ability to work hard and um, stay focused. And sometimes I think that's better than being born with the talent. And he sure has shown that in spite of the, all the different uh, things that have that have kind of held him back physically. Um, he has just continued to practice. He likes to go out and throw the ball and, and he, you know, likes to, he, he goes to all the practices. He's so, that's the one thing he's so responsible about. Hey dad practices in uh, 30 minutes. Are you going to be, are you going to be ready to take me? Are your shoes on yet? 20 minutes. Yeah. He's making (laughs) sure I'm ready. I don't think he's ever been late to a practice other than when it's been my fault. Um, he'll stay after practice and run drills and he just, he loves being around other athletes. And, you know, last year was his senior year and he started middle linebacker and you mean sophomore year, right? What did I say? Senior. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I was, are we talking about a different kid? (laughs) Yeah, no, I do not have a, saw a senior son and uh, so yeah, his sophomore year, they went undefeated. He was, a, he started at linebacker. Um, and you know, what's interesting is every year he's been playing since fifth grade every year he wins the, they do awards at the end of the season always. And, you know, up until this year, every kid gets an award and he's always been kind of the heart of the team award, the, you know, the good sport award, like, cause he's always building up his teammates and, and and telling him great job and, you know, cheering him on from the sidelines when he's been on the sidelines. And then this year, everyone didn't get uh, an award. They, you know, for the sophomores, they only handed out uh, like seven or eight awards and he got the, the um, Falcon spirit award. And it's because he has the heart 
and to see the fruits of his labor now. And he's almost, I'm six, two and he is almost six, two. And yeah, he's getting there. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been lifting with the football team. So I've started lifting cause I don't want him to pass me and he's getting really close to passing me in strength. And it's just cool to see him after all this hard work he's put in to be successful and that's great. And then, well, can I, can yeah. I kind of have an aside there? I've got, you know, he and my son were on a foot on a, on a team that got together and, and these guys, they're, they're, they're athletic and that, but they're, they're not shooters and they were playing basketball. And I was one of the coaches and he we, wishes you were still the coach. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I, I enjoyed that. I think it's my second son's turn to get me as a coach, um, which is happening this year. But, uh, I remember looking at this team going, we've got good athletes here, not a shooter in the bunch. Just they, they're just not shooters. And so I I was looking at him going, how are we going to get this team to succeed? And so we, I started teaching him how to be aggressive within the rules, not dirty, just aggressive and to get mean. Like I wanted them to be hard to score on because I figured if we can't score a lot, we got to keep the other teams score down. And I taught your son and my son, and a few other, a few of the other kids, some things, and and we had them just falling out. Like, were they good at that time? This is we're, we're talking eighth grade. No, they weren't. They weren't. They just weren't. They weren't especially good um, individually, but as a team, they were so hard to score on. And and they started realizing the more aggressive they got on defense, the more steals they got. The more steals, more opportunities, more opportunities, more points. And 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 they got to the point where they did some pretty good scoring and to, to the point where uh, when COVID hit and they shut everything down, that we were one of only three teams left in the 16-team league. And your son was right there at the heart of it. And, um, and you know, and my son was there too. And I, I just feel uh, this pride in having helped those boys now they did all the work and they had to do all the trying i did you know that the easy part is well it's the easy part and the hard part the easy part is motivating them because you don't actually have to do the work you just have to find the right way to get to them but watching those kids that group that crew together just grow into that undefeated sophomore team this year that that's been one of my greatest satisfactions um just as a dad and a coach, um, my son aside, my son has done pretty well too, but, but, uh, your son and the other kids, just watching them turn into, well, little men instead of big boys has been just a a joy. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because that is like, like you mentioned, not a shooter in the bunch and, and my son is still not a shooter and that has never stopped him from taking every three point shot he had an opportunity to take. But when I go and watch him, I don't care if he makes a a shot because I love watching him on defense because he is, and it was it was that season. He's a that freaking you had animal. Him. He <laughs> is so aggressive. I, it, it, and it's just fun to watch him get steals and just stop people from shooting. And it, you and know, to just lay down a block where the people didn't think he was close enough. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like. It, you know, my son's not a shooter either. He's a good athlete, great athlete, actually, but he's not Amazing a shooter. Amazing athlete. <laughs> yeah. Well, and a fast one. Oh, my goodness. He yeah. is the fastest kid I've well, ever I'll, seen. I'll blame my wife for that. But yeah. um, watching these guys go and just, you know, when, when somebody drives the key, I told your kid one time, I said, 
how many fouls do they give you? He said, five. I said, use them. Like, it's just, <laughs> just make sure, I mean, not dirty, but you make sure that they don't get the shot off. You know, make them earn each shot one by one from the foul line. They give you five, and then the next game he fouled out. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love coaching a kid. Anyway, man, this time has flown. We've, we've been yeah. going for an hour. Does it feel like that yet? No, it has. It's gone fast. It's been really fun just talking. Yeah, well, and we we've known each other here and there, but we don't know each other that well. And and uh, gosh, this this episode, uh, you came across you came across really well. This is this was a big one. I I like the I like the way this one went. So appreciate you coming. Um, appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts and uh, for making it really real for us. I mean, we won't hardly any of us listening or me. We don't get the experience to do the things you do. And thanks for making it personal that was that was awesome well thanks for having me i appreciate it you're welcome anything you want to say before we before we part go utes <laughs> <laughs> for those who are not from here the utes are the university of utah so i can get behind that a little bit for most of the time unless they're paying playing certain other teams but uh yeah go utes go utes <laughs> uh no i i do i um thanks for the opportunity i love my job i love what i do it's rewarding um you know, we didn't really get into any of the saves or the, or the good stuff, but, um, it's, yeah, it, I don't, I don't have very many hobbies because I feel like my work is my hobby. And, uh, one of, you know, you've, I've, you've probably heard this phrase before, but if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's kind of how I feel. So, um, people come up and they say, Hey, thanks for, thanks for what you do and whatever. And I'm like, we, you're you're welcome but we're doing it because it is awesome it's a blast it's a blast and so yeah cool well i am glad you feel that way about it because <laughs> if i ever need saving and you show up then i'll know i'm in the right hands for sure let's hope that day never comes yeah and if i show up then because uh, i work in a few cities away then either things have gone really far south and everyone's out on calls it's probably armageddon if i'm coming up here to save you <laughs> but i work down there in that city where you oh, that's where you right. work too that's where i i'm traveling there every day so it could happen but okay. it shouldn't it should never happen well you be a little <laughs> be a little reckless on the days that i'm on and yeah uh, you just text me that and i'll yeah, just i'll text like, you my schedule like heck no. I mean, the cell phone stays in the cup holder. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good. All right. Well, thanks, Josh. Um, everybody, if uh, if you would like to know more about Josh, um, well, you're not a public figure. I'm not going to give out your information, but uh, Josh is awesome, and I appreciate you so much. Thanks. All right. We'll see you. So that's Josh. He's one of the funniest guys I know um, at the at the football games. We talked about our kids' football games. He is shouting from the stands, and it's a riot listening to him to talk and to just, uh, you know, be himself. Um, he, and what he does is super important, but he does it with grace and, uh, and a lot of fun, it seems like. Um, at any rate, I really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you did, too. Thanks for joining me. I have some new equipment. So the next time I put out a podcast episode, I hope it's been recorded and edited on different equipment and look forward to that in the next episode. We'll see you. We're rolling. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. 
I'm here with, well, hold on. I got to ask you this. Is Josh Forsyth, right? Josh Forsyth. <laughs> what if I just announce you wrong and you and don't, I don't correct me? And I don't tell you until yeah. the end. And you're like, thanks, Josh Forsyth. And I'm like, it's Forsyth. 